Welcome to a new year of Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Almost a month ago to the day, my guest Jill Bodak and her family said goodbye to Bill Bodak, her father. Bill was 64 years old with a half-working brain because of a catastrophic stroke he suffered while skiing at Big White in January of 2020. Bill Bodak left this world through MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. Jill has written a book entitled Loved Into Being, Reflections on Stroke and Being Indestructible. The book documents her journey with her dad from the day she got the call about the stroke to the last precious minutes together on December the 6th, 2022. Jill explains to me today that it is only by loving her dad so deeply that she can feel this kind of loss, and only by grieving thoroughly can she herself come back to life. Please welcome Jill Bodak to Breaking Brave. Well, welcome, Jill Bodak, to Breaking Brave. You are a gift. The work, your book, Loved Into Being, is a gift. I finished it this morning. I don't know what to say, except in the 44 episodes we have recorded and released, I have never cried, but I'm not sure if that's going to be the case this time because I feel so inextricably linked to you, your father, and your family through the through the book that you have written. So with your permission, I'm going to start by reading something from the book that just, I think, encapsulates the entire thing, and then we'll, we'll go back, because we have a global audience, and yes, great, you wrote the book, and I read the book, but nobody listening so far knows what the hell we're talking about. So here's the quote that I'd like to say for me was the one. It was the it. It takes half a roll of paper towel to soak up the urine on the floor while he stands in it. We are both afraid he might slip if we try to relocate on the wet tiles. His vulnerability and the sheer amount of accidental fluid we are dealing with drown the last dregs of my anger. I look at him in the mirror and at our two tear-stained faces. It's okay, Dad. We'll be okay. So, Jill, one week today, you're going to say goodbye to your father on December the 6th of 2022. Am I correct with this? That's right. And you have written a book about it called Loved Into Being. And so, for the sake of our global audience... I would love you to talk about that, and then maybe also as an addendum, talk about where it sits. So over to you. Yeah, thank you, Marilyn. And hearing you read that quote, the one that landed for you, is so touching for me because each moment of that book is alive in my body. And so when you read that one back to me, I'm right there too. And Ah, man, some of the moments that I've shared with my dad in the last few years have been what I like to call poignancy overload. Like if, if, uh, if a moment could just get so vividly alive in its um, terror and its beauty. And, and so loved into being 
is a project that continues to surprise even me. I started writing about my dad and my experience of his stroke uh, throughout the pandemic. He had a stroke in January of 2020, just before COVID started. And so we navigated uh, his stroke in Kelowna. He was on a, a ski trip with his friends on vacation. He's 61 years old, just living his living his life out there. And um, and then he had this massive stroke. And and from that time when when my siblings and I flew to him in Kelowna, and then uh, the immediate days and the transferring back to his hometown in Thunder Bay, and and uh, his different rehab settings and. COVID isolations and times I could be near him and times I couldn't be near him and times I was so up close in hands-on in the caregiving and sometimes I was so far away uh, and and really couldn't reach him. And I was writing all that time uh, from shortly after his stroke through to the spring of 2022. And while I was writing that story, it was kind of because I had to. I just had to. And and the process of that writing for me was first to one of my one of my mentors, my writing mentors calls it filling the sandbox, where it was just to dump it all out somewhere so that I could say I don't have to carry that all around in my body. I could just put it here in this document. And then and then to refine and sculpt that document down and realize, actually, there's something here that I want to say, something that I want to share, something that I want to um, encapsulate in some way. And all of that was done last spring before my dad's sort of overall well-being took a real dive. Um, So we made it, when I wrote it, it was a recovery story. And then as it turns out, the finish of it is going to be a story about medically assisted death. And so when I wrote it, I didn't realize that I was writing a portrait or a case for the kind of person that would need access to that right to die when the time came. And, and then as we navigated his, his decline last spring in, in overall well-being, in mental health, in physical capacity, and in general willingness to keep pushing through all of his disabilities and his hardships, his suffering, as that was all turning in a direction I hadn't anticipated, it was a light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh, the book ends when he dies. And I I didn't know it when I was writing it. And so I love that you say that the book is a gift because it's actually also a gift to me um, in in walking towards these last days of his life. I've already done all the sculpting and the revisiting and the refining of how I really felt and what I want to say about all of that time with him. So that in these last seven days together, and I've been here for a few days longer than that and navigating this end of life stuff with him for a few months now, we can talk about the process if if you want to afterwards. But as we've been walking towards this finish line, I've been given the gift of this book as something that I can now say is an anchor for me and a way for me to share 
um, with our immediate family and our really tight-knit community here in Thunder Bay where my dad lives, and then with a broader global community, what this was. And I feel like something accidental for me happened in the importance of what is being shared. And, and it happened only through me being willing to do kind of that deep digging in my own grief and, and panic and messiness of the whole thing. It is a true gift, Jill, because I think of it now, and I think if you had decided to try to look back and write about it, the stroke happened on the side of the hill at Big White on January the 27th of 2020, and if we're sitting here even this spring, never mind now, being the end of November, I just don't think you could have done it. The poignancy the clarity, the rawness of it. I mean, I've got shivers just even thinking about it. I just don't know how you had the time. I mean, (laughs) you weren't sleeping, you weren't eating, you were running, crying, crying, running. Uh, There's another opportunity here for me, if you don't mind. Here's, Here's where it sort of encapsulates it to me. The lens from the book, the lens through which I view the world is now highly attuned to dad's physical needs. I consider details that never crossed my mind in the past. Are there stairs at the places we're going? Railings? Where's the bathroom? What side is the toilet paper on? Are there grab bars on the walls? Uneven sidewalks? Curbs? Accessible parking? A walk-in shower? The sheer mass of details pushed the edge of what I can manage. I start to crack under the pressure. And those were not static details because as he took a turn for the better or the worse, the details changed and morphed. And yet you were able to capture it. Why do you think that was, Jill? Why why do you think you still at the end of the most exhausting day, 20 hours, 24 hours, 72 hours, you were still able to catch it, to capture it, to write it? That's such a great question. And I can only say my most honest answer is that I had some practices in place that caught me. And I'm a person who has always reveled in mornings. So those first hours upon waking have been very uh, organically tilled by me. And like, what do I do with my body in that time? Just right, right at the start. How do I go from sleeping back to being me out in the world again? And some of those practices, they, they went back years, years and years before my dad's stroke, where um, I work in a profession that is ultimately a caregiving profession. It's a, you know, health-related field. So I've always felt like once the day gets going, the the needs on me are just like, wear this hat, wear this hat, do that dance, do this thing, do that thing, care for this person, respond to this. Um, and, and somehow I had carved out mourning for me as like um, a no-fly zone for anything else. And... And when my dad's stroke happened and and we flew to Kelowna and I was just there with him, I maintained that um, 
out of habit, not out of wisdom or um, any kind of enlightened decision. It was just a habit to be like, I know that I cannot be here for all of you if you don't give me the first 90 minutes of the day. And so sometimes I use them to run. Sometimes I use them to just roll around on the floor and cry. And every day there was at least 30 minutes that I knew I had to open my computer and download or upload or offload or something, um, get it out what was happening around me and in me. And when I look back, it was 400 pages that that poured out of that in initial sandboxing. Um, and so when I look back at that, the first ever uh, pile of things that came out, it was it was so raw. It was just like, bleh. <laughs> Um, and, and when I look back on it now, I can't believe that I did it either. I'm like, mm. where was the time? What, how did I do that? And it wasn't in massive 12 hour days of writing or, or I'm not the kind of person who just like sat down and banged it out for four straight days without eating or sleeping or drinking. It was tiny little incremental sits in the morning that maybe came through my, history of meditation practice or came through um, my dedication to what I call peaceful mornings uh, in our home. And, and, and then this thing, this book came, this pile of 400 pages of stuff came out of that. It had to have been very cathartic for you. I mean, whether it felt like it at the time or perhaps now looking back, what was the motivation? Was it I have to capture this because I need to have a bit of a journal slash scrapbook type of thing to be able to go back and remember and look and see. Or was it that you in your own soul felt like, I just got to get this out of me. So this is the cathartic piece of it. What happens to it, I don't care, but I just got to get it out of it. Yeah, it was never meant for what I would do with it afterwards. Okay. But it was something I was trying to figure out in real time. It was like, mm. honestly, now that the book is finished and I, I have a printed copy, the first ever printed copy, which my dad has signed. And, um, and we keep asking him to write reviews on it. So um, he can't write, but I ask him, what's your review on the book today? And then he says something really obscure and hilarious. And we keep capturing them so that when the book comes out, it can have some endorsements from him that are like, oh, it's a good one. <laughs> um, Brilliant. Good for you. <laughs> so um, it was a live stream discussion between me and me, almost like me talking to me in that horrible thing that happened yesterday. It's like the next morning I could talk to myself about that. And once I had the printed copy, I carried it around with me for many days in a row because it was like a really good friend. It was so incredible. The feeling that I had towards this book was like, oh, you were the friend that was with me every single morning that whole time. And you're the friend that knows the fullest version of this for me. And so it was like, <laughs> it's the most self-centered book <laughs> in the world. <laughs> no, but, it isn't. But it's like, no, it isn't. yeah, me sorting it out with me every morning and then what what came from that was was actually a really good friend and i 
my prayer or my hope for this book is that it can be a good friend for other people who have to navigate. We all eventually have to navigate some version of watching a loved one um, be struck down. I don't know if you've got more writing in you. Obviously, you're going to write the end after your dad leaves us, leaves the world. You hear me calling us like I'm part of your family because I feel like I am after reading the book. But your writing is so palpable that I was there. I could feel it. I could see it. Um, So maybe, Jill, you could talk to me now about what is your, and, and best made plans. I know it may not work out this way, but what do you envision the future of the book, the end, and then the the beginning and the end of the book to be, if you will? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've committed to doing is writing the last chapter of the book after my dad dies. So the reason why it's not open on Amazon right this second uh, is that the story is not quite over. And, um, honestly, that, that moment that, you know, whenever it happens next Wednesday, maybe next Tuesday afternoon, um, feels like a, a safe space I've made for myself. I'm going to go back to this really old friend and finish up something. Uh, It's something that I don't even know yet. And then, and then because this book was always, um, a project that kept surprising me, I am self-publishing it right now, uh, and it will be available by the time this podcast airs. It will be available on Amazon, on all the Amazons, from what I understand. And it'll also be available through my website as a downloadable e-version. And all the proceeds from the book will be used in memory of my dad to support Dying with Dignity, which is um, the organization, the non-for-profit organization here in Canada that advocates for the um, advancement of people's access for a right to die with dignity. So my dad knows about this project and is giving his two thumbs up endorsements um, and he's read the whole book cover to cover. So I have the only um, review I ever needed, which was his. And the rest of it for me is a cherry on top or the the ripple out afterwards. It's, you know, what's going to happen when I drop this pebble into this pond and how far will the ripples go? And this podcast is, is one of those ripples. Uh, a stretch goal for me would be that some publisher somewhere says, you know what, I would love to pick this book up. It's totally done and ready to go. It's beautiful. It's touching people. And we could, we could, make the ripple wider. We could send another wave out. Um, We could have more discussions in other places about stroke, about caregiving, about end-of-life choices, about, oh gosh, about what we do in our own fragile little bodies as we navigate all of that real, all of that real-time stuff. I am... I'm so inspired by those topics anyways. And and in the book, you know, we talk about 
I talk a lot about my history with my fascination and fear of death and and my my relationship with mortality is is full frontal colliding with with my dad's fate uh and that's continuing to happen now and and where that goes afterwards is the echo on and it's also my tribute to him to uh keep writing keep talking uh and keep opening myself up in the ways that feel so natural to me to share you know i'm not this isn't a big stretch for me to share with you marilyn it's an it's an honor well thank you for doing so because it's like when i teach when i talk about storytelling to clients that i'm working with storytelling creates a a, a mini little movie in your mind and it also brings back experiences close to your own heart and I lost my dad about round figures 30 years ago to lung cancer. So it was not the journey you've been on, but the rawness, the dignity, the vulnerability, the help in ways you'd never expected to have to or be called upon to help a parent. It just came back over me. So I think it is a gift to the world because all of us are going to be staring down some version of having to step in and help. And this is a great, great gift to people to be able to read. Can I go here now, Jill? So what's what's happened? What's declined? What's changed for your father that this decision to and his life, medically assisted, and his life. How did that come to be? You finished this book in April of this year, but what's happened for your father that this decision's been made? Oh, I think the answer to that question starts at about March of 2022. So um, late winter, March is late winter in Thunder Bay, and winter goes here deep into May. And that's about the time I was expecting, my partner and I were expecting the birth of my son in April. Um, we weren't visiting. I wasn't visiting him anymore. I I was really in new baby prep. And that's the time when I started getting the phone calls Something isn't right. He won't get out of bed. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to see his friends. He doesn't want to leave his room. Uh, and my dad, his friends would always say he was always the yes man. It was like, whatever you wanted, you know, like, do you, do you want to go on a long drive? Yeah. Do you want to eat this great thing? Yeah, is, is the yes man. And so something happened in this late winter of last year where he was starting to be like the no guy. And it was shocking to everyone uh, to watch whatever that pivot was for him. I don't know if it was isolation. His care home had two really big bouts of COVID inside the home that locked all people out for weeks at a time. And so anytime you take a person who's had a brain injury or has neurological deficits or works with um, paralysis of any kind, which my dad in his arm and his leg, he can't move really either one of them. If you put him in bed for a couple of weeks, the amount of loss there uh, all around, just like energy, capacity, mobility, going to the bathroom, getting dressed, 
getting out of bed. It's just like in two weeks, you lose, I don't know, 20 years of, of movement. Uh, that's what it's, that's what it seems like from the outside. And so, you know, we try to figure out what it was that sort of pushed him away from that really committed attitude towards recovery and into this other sort of state where he started saying, I try and I try, but I can't get better. And, and he's, he was right. And that was the thing that we couldn't uh, take away from him was like, he was naming it. He's just like, I have worked as hard as I humanly can. And this is the peak of the mountain for me. It is only down from here. And I was alongside him in that recovery effort every every step of the way. And when he started saying that, I couldn't lie to him. I, I said, you know what, Dad, you're right. This probably is about as far as we're going to be able to get here. And then every round of COVID or every even head cold or um, slip and fall, every one of those is going to be just a little, a little drop in functionality. And the other thing that was at play for my dad, which is not at play for all stroke survivors, is post-stroke seizures. And some people get them and some people don't. And I will say that for us and in my experience, that was the one that really stripped it for him down to the bones. And so the mix of the the winter, the seizures, the amount of medication he had to be on in order to control those seizures, and then just the way that he felt like total and complete exhaustion or lethargy or hopelessness, that was all starting to happen in the spring. And then, and my son was born and my dad's the strongest human I've ever met in my whole life. And he would rally to talk to us on FaceTime. And my mom would say afterwards, that's the most I've heard him speak in weeks. You know, like he was, he, he would fight to show up and be happy or be positive. But the, the amount of effort that was taking for him come the spring of this year was extraordinary. And, and then he started saying things like, I can't try so hard anymore. And uh, I think for my whole family, that was a moment around, you know, facing our own ableism, our own sense that he should just keep trying and keep getting better. And he would just keep getting better and better and better, you know, like the way you want it to go. Um, and that it's very humbling moment to, to sort of break that incessant positive leaning attitude and say, you know what, dad, you don't have to try so hard anymore. If you want to try less hard, I think you've earned that. And, and that was, uh, I, I think I said that to him the first time I saw him after my son was born, which was in early summer, late June, early July of this year. And, and then as soon as he had that permission from me and from everyone, he tried a little less and he looked a lot sicker and it was mm. just proof positive for me that he was fooling us all around how well he, 
he naturally was, you know, a part of it was just his incredible resilience and perseverance and effort that was making him seem like, well, you could probably do this for another 10 years. And when he started saying, I'm tired, I can't try so hard anymore. And he let himself rest a little bit. That's when we saw just how much pain his body is in and how hard and heavy it is for him. And uh, yeah, and that's what led into conversations around him saying he wanted to die. Did he actually say that to you? I want to die. Yeah. Yes? Yes. And so in your in the book, Jill, you are so incredible at having figured out, created, figured out the language between yourself and your dad and that there would be words he'd say that he wanted to use a different word, but he couldn't use it, but you understood what he was trying to get out. Mm-hmm. So now everyone, you and your family are clear, he's done. Yeah. Put his hand up, check please. I've been fighting what feels like for 20 years, which is, has been what, four or five? How old is he now? 65? He just turned 64. Or 64. Yeah. And when he dies, Marilyn, he will have lived 1,044 days since stroke. I told him that the other day. 1,044 days. That's a really good job. That's an incredible job. When you think about, I, I can't even think about it other than in the lens that you provide us all with the book, that I don't know how hard it is to even swing your legs out of bed and 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 try to stand up when you have no use of your right side. Yeah. And also putting on the face yeah. or trying to be the brave face for yeah. the family. So how how then, what then, Jill, if you can explain this, because you and I haven't talked about this, what do you do? He's, he's mentally fit enough to be able to make that decision. But what now? What's this journey like? Because this is the part where I'm sure the world is like, okay, what do you have to do to make this happen? Yeah. Well, I will say that this part of it has been the deepest test of my ability to really listen to him. So in the book, when I'm trying to figure out what he wants to say, it was always to keep him alive. And in these last few months, it's been a big ask for me internally to say, Jill, are you still willing to figure out what he means if you know that what he means is he wants to die? As a caregiver and as a daughter, it's like, am I willing to listen to you even when what you're saying is the most heartbreaking, horrible thing that you could say to me? And so in the start, he he didn't have the word die in his lexicon. He said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I can't do this anymore. And uh, it was the repetition of that and me being like, you don't want to do breakfast or you don't want to do Uh, therapy, or you don't want to do medications, or you don't, you know, and he was like, no. And then, well, (laughs) 
what sealed it truly is he started making uh, the symbol of slitting his own throat with his hand, with his left hand. He would do the, you know, the like cut uh, action across his throat. And that was, I mean, it couldn't get more clear than that for me. And it was when I, that's when I said, you want to die. And after he showed, he showed that gesture to me and to my aunt and to some of his good friends and everyone was talking about it. Like, you know, I was with Bill today and he, he made the action of, you know, cutting his own head off. He said, he doesn't want to do this. And, and everyone's sort of in the background being like, well, what do we do with that? Um, and, and after talking to him about it often enough, then he, he hooks into the word die. And now he says, I do purposely want to die. And he says that sentence just like that, particularly after we've had a really good laugh or a really great day. Because anytime we have some real high points, I'm always like, are you sure? You, you could change your mind. And then he looks at me so seriously and says, I do purposely want to die. And, and he is clear. So that process of, of getting clear about that took some time, language development time. And then once we were clear, I am very often the person in my family that takes the reins on, well, what are we going to do about that? And um, I had a good conversation with a friend of mine in Toronto who I knew had helped had helped someone dear to her access made and i said you know how do i where do i start with this and one of the things she told me is that well I, she had helped her friend get access to made he was a late stage cerebral palsy um person and and once he had access to the right to die once they granted him permission he no longer wanted to die and there was something in the freedom of having the choice of knowing that when the time came, if he wanted to play that card, he was, he was approved. He had the, he had the green light to do it if he wanted to. And that, that agency, uh, giving a person that agency can create so much peace, um, and so much relief to know, okay, things are bad now. But if they get to a certain point, I, I can check out. And that, uh, for my friend, uh, created a whole new life for him. And, and it was, is three years since his application for made. And he's living, he's living in his severely disabled body happily, knowing that he has options when he needs them. And I think something about that story really bolstered my confidence into navigating the first contact with, um, medically assisted dying in Northwestern Ontario. And who do you have to call? And, and how do you go about the process? And we went through those early stages of the process, really hoping that giving my dad that agency would make him see or feel that he, of course, he has that right, but he doesn't have to exercise it right now. And it was our first interview. So what happens is you, you kind of contact your family doctor, your family doctor puts in a requisition to MAID, and then the people from the MAID organization contact your family and say, we recognize that this is something that's in process and, and here's what will happen. You'll be assessed by one doctor. Then you'll be assessed separately by another doctor on a different day. And then you'll have to get a specialist to confirm that there is nothing else on this earth within our means that we could possibly do to change your mind. So for my dad, that was his neurologist who deals with his seizure medications and his blood pressure medications and all of the balancing of everything 
around his neurochemistry. So they laid that path out for us that, you know, of course you have, you can explore this avenue and here are the steps you'll have to take. And so we went to the first meeting um, and the, the woman said, you know, you can't just call someone up and say you want to die and then you get to die. And it was very off the cuff like that, like as though we thought it was going to be a walk in the park or something. <laughs> um, and the the first contact with Maid really did feel like uh, there's a lot of deterring, like it's not an invitation to like, please, everyone, come on in. We do this whenever you want. But then my dad has to go through this assessment interview process. And it was in the first interview when the woman said to him, if I asked you, if I told you that you could die today and that was your only choice, would you take it? And he said, yes. And and she was like, okay, you know, it's it's not... Uh, it's not a pie in the sky request for him. It's, it actually couldn't come soon enough for him. And so the way that medically assisted dying protocols work uh, right now is that if you're not a person who the doctors see as having a foreseeable death, if they can't see it, say, you'll definitely be gone in six weeks or two months or whatever, then you go on what's called track two, and track two means you have a chronic, incurable, debilitating illness that's causing suffering that is beyond what you can tolerate. And you're not going to die immediately. So this is really a choice. And if you end up in that track, then you have to wait 90 days from your first interview till the day that you can die. So for us, that was September 6th to December 6th. And she said, the soonest day you can die is December 6th. So do you have another date in mind? Like, do you want to wait until after Christmas or do you want to wait until the new year? Or I mean, he was like, nope, that'll do uh, right away, please. Um, so uh, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a tangent around the question of like, how did we get here? But honestly, my momentum and my wholeheartedness in accessing all of those steps came from an early belief that giving him that kind of option and agency would mean I could keep him longer. And, and what I really feared at that time, especially when he was going days without getting up and, and saying he was going to stop taking his meds and just, I want to get out of here. Um, I was really worried he was going to try to, to end his life on his own, um, by himself and with his current disabilities physically and cognitively that sounded like an absolute disaster to me. Like the last thing I ever wanted was for him to come up with some means to take care of the problem himself and either be unsuccessful and be even more ill and, and suffering than he is now or harm someone else in the, in the act of trying to alleviate the kind of the suffering he was in. So those those two things, the thought that I, that I might get to keep him a little longer if I gave him the right to die and um, and that I really didn't want him to hurt himself or anyone else, those kind of were the fuel for me in being in being willing to navigate the early stages of made. And then as we've walked along together through these 90 days, I've had the opportunity to see so clearly that this is what he deeply needs. And, and that 
of all the caregiving I've done for him, this is the trickiest one. This is, this is a really, really deep and challenging kind of love. And one that I think we don't get to talk about often um, uh, or get a window into. I don't, have a, I don't have a lot of people to chat with about, right, about this right now, you know? No. I feel such a great, I've never met your father or the rest of your family, but I feel such a great sense of peace with it and relief with it because none of us really know what it feels like to be inside of his body. There's no way anybody could. How is your, is, is your family on board with this decision or have you got some folks that are waving flags saying this is wrong mm-hmm. for whatever reason they decide to call it wrong? Oh yeah. There's so many reasons, you know, for people to be opposed or confused or afraid of this kind of choice. It's new. You know, it's, this is not, and this is not the norm for us. We haven't had generations of navigating death in this way. And I will say that everyone, all of my dad's friends, um, his siblings, my siblings, my mom, we see him, we see him and we hear him. And it's like, almost like a, a tip of the hat or like a salute to be like, yeah, I see you. Okay. You deserve that for you. And all of us, <laughs> I asked him the other day, dad, what about how much I'm going to miss you? Like, what are we supposed to do without you? Do you have any tips? And he said, nah, no tips. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like he was really just like, that's not my problem. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> um, But I will say my dad, uh, as is written in the book, my dad lives in a care home right now with his mother. They share a two-bedroom suite in a, like a supported living situation. She's 90. We call her Nana. She is just the most wonderful woman. And this uh, is, is and has been the hardest, most devastating and confusing decision for her. Um, partly I think because of her faith and her, her trust in God that, you know, your life should last as long as God says, not as long as you say. But also I think a little bit because it just short circuits her as a mother, um, in a way that she can't reconcile. And we're all, um, we're all really aware of that and doing our very best to, be with her as best we can. Um, But she's struggling. A parent should never have to experience the death of a child. And now you, as a parent with a young son, it's inconceivable, inconceivable. But yet she's a wise woman. And even at 90, I'm sure she understands that this choice is the right choice for your father, so she respects it. Yeah. they. I wasn't there the day that they really sat down and talk, talked about it, but my aunt said they just held hands and cried, and she said, if this is what you need, I love you. Um, and she said to him the other day, if I could give you 30 years, I would. She said, I've had so many. You know, what do I need them for? And... And it's, I can't imagine 
as a new mother right now, I can't imagine being in a room across the hall from my son. I can't imagine watching him suffer in that way. Um, yeah, it's unimaginable, her situation. And, and so am I able to ask you, Jill, about, well, one of the reasons I'm going down here is made house. And, yeah. and what is that? And, and what will it loosely, obviously not graphic detail, because I'm not part of the family. Mm-hmm. What will December the 6th look like for you, your dad, and your family? Yeah. Well, Made House is a project in Toronto. It's the only one in the country. And we don't have access to its facilities on December 6th because we'll be in Thunder Bay. So mm. Made House... Uh, I've been in contact with them. They have incredible resources for families. And it is a non-for-profit kind of startup. It's relatively new. It's a place to go when you've chosen uh, to access your right to die. It's a building. It's a home that you can do that in. Um, I I met with the people in Toronto several weeks ago. Just an extraordinary project. And I was so blown away that that exists, especially at a time when I'm navigating it in Northwestern Ontario, where resources are much thinner, acceptance and awareness around MAID is far lower. And even the number of doctors willing to provide medically assisted deaths in Thunder Bay is abysmal. It's very, very difficult to find the, you know, the one or two people that are willing to to do this up here. Uh, So, For us, December 6th, uh, the choices are the hospital or home. And uh, we've chosen home. uh, And my dad doesn't want to be at the care home where he lives right now. So he'll come home to our childhood home, my parents' house, um, and he'll die in the living room. That's the plan. Um, To wrap our heads around that, uh, or for people listening It is going to literally look like a man who's going to have breakfast, be walking and talking and listening to music, uh, who will walk himself to a a couch, probably the couch. He says the couch. We're sort of back and forth on that. Um, And he'll lie down and then he'll have two IVs in his arms and and a 10-minute ride between here and there. What will you say to him? how do you and your siblings and your family come together to say, do we all say something? Do we each say something? Do we say nothing? Do we just hold his hand? Do we, I just don't, I don't know. Is it something you can plan for? Is it something that you say, I guess we're just going to have to see what he wants at that time. There's a theme in the book uh, that I call imagination versus reality. And I visit that theme often uh, as I'm thinking about, you know, flying to see him for the first time after his stroke. My imagination's running wild about what it's going to be like. And then the reality of it is so different. And it's very often in my experience, especially around death and crisis and things that frighten me, reality is a lot more peaceful than imagination. And... um Putting him in the care home was another one where I just had these horrific ideas of what it was going to be to put him in a home. And the reality was far more peaceful than that. And 
with this approaching December 6th day. And um, yeah, and my dad being set free of this body. I mentioned in the book, there's this part around smashing these clay balls. And so uh, they were they're a gift that was given to me, this sort of like tokens that you make wishes on. And in the book, I smash them when different characters die. And the third one is my dad's. It has his name on it. So all I can say that I know for sure about December 6th is that I don't have much left to say to him that he doesn't already know. Uh, We're all anticipating the possibility of some amount of fear and, and how to meet the fragility and the tenderness of that. Uh, I think we're going to have to make it up on the fly, but I imagine there will be some hand-holding and some tears and maybe some music. Um, And I know for sure that I will know the moment to smash the last clay ball and really let him out of this body and on to whatever happens whatever happens after that. Uh, So that's kind of the only practice that I have planned. I have a little kind of mini altar made with his clay ball and a candle. And and I've been writing every day for 40 days before he dies. And and I'll write for 40 days after. That's my kind of current commitment. And and those are my rituals. That's about as much as I can plan. And um, I will say that since... Since he's known that he gets to die in a peaceful way that we all can can walk towards with him, um, it has really brought him to life in a way that you, you hear from people, you know, like a second wind or a, something happened to him that was, he was back. So he has been so utterly vibrant and hilarious and willing um, in these last months. And and friends are flying to see him from all over the place and writing him letters and saying goodbye to him. And there's a tenderness and a teariness and um, such an extraordinary opportunity to end a life in a way that um, is very unfamiliar, but has exquisite gifts in it. You know, like one of the scariest things about death is you don't know when. Um, But when you know when, it's also really weird. You're like, oh, (laughs) what do do you do with that? You know, what do you do with 90 days, 45 days, 30 days, 11 days? And now we're at seven. Um, And it definitely can't be scripted, but when December 6th comes, I trust that whatever happens will be just as full of intimacy, of right-up closeness, as all this other time with him has been. Jill, you've helped so many people by talking so openly about this, about the journey, and putting it in this magnificent book. How can we support you, your family, Maid, Maid House? This is the part where can we shout out to various organizations 
um, that you would like to see our listeners support. Mm -hmm. Do you still need help with a GoFundMe page? This is the part where it's like, here's, here's the access to the website, to the whatever, to the whatever. Mm -hmm. And when do you think the access to the book will be available to the world? Thank you for asking that. The, the logistics of it for me are being navigated day to day. And so it's my hope that my dad's funeral will be the Sunday after he dies. It's going to be at a pub and uh, there'll be music and there'll be drinks and there'll be singing and dancing and crying and all the things. It will be a party. And it is my hope that by that Sunday, the book is, is at least live and available for online purchase. So one of the ways that listeners can, can help, I, I assume this podcast will come out sometime around then or a little bit after, um, get the book in any form. The proceeds will go to Dying with Dignity. Um, I haven't been in touch about donating to Maid House yet, but I would love to. So if you're feeling like you want to support medically assisted death and people or families walking this journey other than mine, Made House is an incredible organization in Toronto that needs support so that we can build other organizations like that in other cities in Canada. We need a Made House in every major city so that families who, who are accessing a right to die don't have to experience things like, you know, my, my care home doesn't won't do made. There are care homes associated or, or religiously affiliated where that's against their practices. So there are people out there who are wanting to access their right to die and have no place to do it. So Made House is, is a really great place to send money. Do it in loving memory of Bill Bodak. That would touch us all very deeply. Uh, dyingwithdignity.ca is the more um, politically affiliated body that's doing the work around legislation and rules and coming up this spring 2023, MADE is supposed to be expanded to include access for people who want um, directives, end of life advanced directives. So um, that would that would be like, if you're sitting here in a, in a well body uh, in a fine moment in your life and you're like, I definitely, if something like that happened to me, I would want the right to die. And, and if I wasn't able to consent, you know, if I couldn't speak or if I was unconscious, please don't keep me alive like that. Um, it's made is looking to be expanded to, to create options like that for us to put into our wills or into our advanced directives and to have those conversations with our family that that could be people's right. Um, and it's also expanding into people with mental health diagnoses, PTSD or um, major depressive things, which isn't in my wheelhouse, but it's so politically alive right now around um, around that topic. Dying with Dignity is a place to send your support to help the people doing the frontline work on the legislation end. Made House to help the families that are navigating where to go when this, this is the next step for you or your loved one. Um, and then the book buy it and share it um, and and let the ripple go out as wide as we can as an echoing tribute to a really incredible man who has 
oh, touched my life in ways I'll, I'll never be able to write deeply enough about. And that I, I want to do the story justice by, by sharing it wherever it needs to go. I hope it surprises me. I think it already has. The name of the book is Loved Into Being. And what's your website, Jill? The website to access it is jillbodak.com, which is just my full name, J-I-L-L-B-O-D-A-K.com. Perfect. And let's, I think this one might be the toughest question of all. What's bravery to you? Mm. Yeah, bravery. Man, <laughs> in those moments in my life, when I, I feel so clearly that I am not prepared for this, bravery for me is the moment of trusting that something in me knows even when I don't. And that is the, I don't know, it's the bedrock of faith. It's non-denominational faith to say that when life is so much more than I feel equipped for, I have a sneaky suspicion that something in me knows. And that, that to me is bravery, to trust that inkling that uh, even when I don't, just keep, keep going anyways. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I feel that because there were so many incidences in the book where you had no idea, had no life experience, n- no educational experience, but you had to trust that something inside of you was going to get you through this, was going to show you the way. And it did. Marilyn, I want, I want to say that in preparing for this podcast, which I'm so thankful to have had this chat with you, it's so lovely and grounding and um, auspicious seven days before this major moment in my family's world. I was going through the website and reading about the podcast and just like trying to get a feel for, for everyone that's shared their stories on here at Spectacular Humans. And your Winnie the Pooh quote was it for me. Uh, you know, you're braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. And I was like, well, that's it. That's, uh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Jill, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for sharing this story with the world. And I can't wait to have my very own copy of this book. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you. Likewise. What a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.